Welcome to the PRBI Insider presented by PR Boutiques International. The very best PR results required tailored strategies and individual attention. Effective techniques vary considerably from market to market and culture to culture. So when we create a program, rather than laying out prescribed solutions lacking in freshness and vitality, we start with careful consideration of our clients' objectives and plan a creative roadmap. PRBI, a constellation of boutique agencies connecting cultures and sectors. So we would like to welcome Amy Rotenberg to PRBI Insider today as part of our series on looking at what tactics and techniques work to create consensus. And our topic is diffusing conflict and building consensus in high stakes crisis situations, which Amy faces every day. She is the founder and president of Rotenberg Associates, which is a crisis management firm in Washington, D.C. She's combining nearly two decades of experience in crisis communications with 10 years as a First Amendment media lawyer and trial attorney. In her firm, she provides strategic counsel and crisis communications, including legal counsel, to clients who are facing high-stakes publicity in connection with federal and state litigation, government investigations, product recalls, employee malfeasance, media probes, mergers and acquisitions, IPOs, and spinoffs. She's had extensive experience working with clients in healthcare, higher education, food, financial services, professional sports, nonprofits, and news media. So she's the perfect resource for us to be looking at what works when you are facing a high-stakes crisis situation. So Amy, welcome. Thank you, Joy. It's great to be back talking with you again about these very interesting issues. Likewise. So we know today that there are so many situations that companies and organizations can get into that create potentially devastating and high-profile crises, everything from Me Too allegations, conflicts with unions, disputes with customers. So could you talk with us, first of all, overall, what are the first types of best practices that you go to and what do you advise a client when they're facing this situation? So in these situations, conflict, of course, can lead to reputational challenges and sometimes even the existence of an organization. And in trying to manage it, it's always an option to fight back through social media or with a lawsuit, but there's some serious downsides and risks to doing so. Among those things are, for one thing, lawsuits are very expensive. They're slow, and they might not even be able to achieve your objectives. Social media, on the other hand, sometimes fuels the fire and makes activists even more aggressive. And sometimes, back and forth really does not impact an organization's key stakeholders. It's just shouting back and forth among the people who are on that channel, but not reaching the majority of the public. So there must be a better way then. And we had talked about an approach called facilitated dialogue. Can you explain what that means and how it works? Well, sometimes a third party can be offered up by an organization or an employer to be kind of a neutral and help parties who are part of a conflict come together. And this kind of facilitation can bring the temperature down. So in other words, it's an option to actually try to find some kind of consensus, a win-win 
for individuals and organizations so that they don't have to fight each other in the court of public opinion. And if we can do this, we can give the parties a safe place to dialogue and provide a chance for everyone to be heard and foster creative solutions on how to get to a place where both sides are going to feel good. Now, most of, or if not all, of the situations in which you're working, of course, there's confidentiality involved. But could you give us some generic examples, maybe, of what this third party or who this third party might be? Well, sure. It's different in different situations, but let's take a dispute between an employer and their workers. We're seeing a lot of this lately, a lot of frustration over wage and hours and other treatment of workers. And that has resulted, of course, in, you know, walk-offs and calling in sick, union organizing, or sometimes even the public and the workers joining together for boycotts against the employer. So bringing in a third party for facilitated dialogue can help both the workers and the employer feel safe in discussing what the issues are and trying to come to a resolution without the pressures of the public peering in and maybe elevating even issues and making it difficult to find a resolution. So the kind of person in that situation, there are many professionals who are mediators, who are maybe come out of the social services field, counselors who can come in and be the go-between between employers and their workers. So obviously these situations, this kind of facilitated meeting, is a high-stakes event in and of itself. What do you recommend in terms of choreographing and setting up the meeting that will likely ensure its success? Well, Joy, you want to create an atmosphere that feels safe for people to express themselves candidly. That's usually the biggest issue is whether people feel like they can really speak honestly without any kind of negative repercussion. And so one of the first things that we always suggest is to have an agreement among the parties not to record. And what that means is that in person, we ask people to turn their phones off or to actually turn their phones in. In this day and age, people are constantly recording conversations and video on their phones, and they can even do that sort of surreptitiously That really creates a lot of fear and hesitation, I think, among parties because they don't really know who's got their phone and and what they're doing with it and whether if they speak up, they're going to be recorded and their statements misused or even edited in the future and publicized. So we always ask people to agree not to record and turn the phones in. And the way we do this is that we typically say, I'm sitting here in my office and I'm not recording and the other side can then say that they are not recording either. That's what would happen if you are in a dialogue over the phone or over Zoom. If you're in person, you can simply ask everybody to set their phones on a table at the front of the room and then everyone can see that they've done that. Other things to consider in terms of creating an atmosphere for people to feel safe to express themselves is to choose the location carefully. Will that location be in person or is it going to be virtual? And if it is in person, where will it be? Consider whether there would be an advantage to hosting the meeting on, you know, your own turf, or would it be better to pick a neutral location? 
let's talk about who actually participates in this meeting in terms of legal counsel being present and how to introduce it and involve the attendees themselves. Well, it really depends on the nature of the situation. Of course, if the matter is already in litigation, there's very specific professional ethics rules about whether lawyers can be present if the other side is represented and their lawyer is not there. So it really depends. But let's just assume that we're in a situation that is at the beginning of a dispute and it is not legal yet and people are not represented yet. Deciding on who participates in the meeting is really important. If the meeting is without lawyers, that usually takes a lot of pressure off and allows the parties to come to understandings that they may otherwise feel more limited with lawyers present. But on the other side, having lawyers present can create certain discipline to those meetings too. And those are just important things to consider when you're setting up the meeting. Other things to consider is whether the meeting is going to be with management directly or with a neutral facilitator, like we talked about a few minutes ago. It's best always to request the name of the attendees who are going to be coming to the meeting so that there's no surprises. And I think we've learned this is especially true for Zoom meetings. I had a situation in which there was a very sensitive meeting set up between an academic institution and the family of a student, and the family brought all kinds of additional people to the meeting on the Zoom that were unexpected, and that dramatically changed the tenor and, frankly, also the content of the meeting. So it's always best to find out who is going to be on on a meeting, who's going to show up in person to a meeting so that there's no surprises. So once the meeting has been structured, what best practices do you advise, Amy, for actually conducting the meeting and managing the dynamics? Again, the choreography is really important and best to think about these things in advance. Will the parties share the same space or will they be in separate rooms with a mediator or a third party going back and forth between them? It's also important to consider whether you as the organizer of the meeting believe that this will be a one and done opportunity. Is this going to be a one-time thing or is this going to be the first of what might be several meetings? And if it's the latter, it's important to think ahead as to what issues will be covered in each session and what you're hoping the outcome will be for each session. A lot of advanced planning obviously needing to go into this to ensure the chance of success. Once the meeting is underway, what do you advise in terms of the desired dynamics to achieve the outcome that everybody wants to achieve? Well, right. And of course, the parties probably each have different outcomes that they're hoping to achieve. But the common one would be to achieve a resolution, presumably, of whatever the dispute is. And so a top priority, of course, is to try to bring the temperature down so that the problem solving can take place and solutions explored and a compromise achieved. It's important then to think about what the other side needs to feel validated or to achieve what they would consider to be a win and what you can offer or concede to get to that point. Because 
nobody wants to feel backed into a corner. So it's always consider what are the face-saving options that might be available. So as this discussion takes place, you know, the talking can go on for a long time. How do you manage the meeting to bring about a conclusion and a solution? Well, that part's really important, too. Sometimes you want to start off by establishing at the beginning how much time is available, right? You might say, we're gathering today, and this is the initial meeting, and we're going to spend one hour on this. Or you might say, we're going to stay here until close of business, and and hopefully by allowing extra time, we'll be able to hash something out. But I think it's important that people have some kind of expectation of what the time frame will be. And then in advance, you want to think about how you would bring the meeting to a conclusion. Will you be offering next steps and articulating those to all who are present? Or are you going to promise to memorialize certain parts or all of the discussion? You know, should a a follow-up meeting be scheduled? Or are you prepared to end the meeting with an agreement to disagree? And those are all different outcomes for any kind of controversial meeting I think one of the big mistakes that people make is they go into a meeting without thinking about how the meeting could end or how they want it to end. And in some ways, there's an opportunity to take control by thinking about those things in advance, having a plan and agenda for how you would bring the meeting to a close. Often, part of a resolution of of a disagreement is an apology by one of the parties to the other. But this tactic, while it can definitely be um, reassuring and appreciated, it can have some downsides. Could you talk a little bit about the risks of apologies? That's right. Well, apologies are very powerful. And for many people, they are absolutely essential to being able to feel that they were heard and that justice has been achieved. But there's a lot more to that because of legal consequences, because an apology can be viewed as an admission. And when you're in a dialogue like we've been talking about, which is outside of the legal framework, you have to both balance this sort of psychological advantage of offering an apology and being sympathetic and being empathetic with what the serious legal risks are. You're probably familiar with a number of states in the healthcare arena have statutes that protect doctors and health systems from making apologies for medical errors. And what these statutes do is allow medical providers to show the empathy and the care for their patients by apologizing for errors that they know of and that they feel responsible for, but with knowing that apology will not be able to be used against them in litigation. And there's been quite a lot of studies that have shown that medical providers' ability to do this has dropped the rate of litigation dramatically. In other words, patients and their families sometimes just want to be heard and just want to know that the error was acknowledged. And if they get that, sometimes they are dissuaded from engaging in costly and lengthy litigation. And so those statutes have been really effective and desirable in many, many states. But on the other hand, in other contexts, for example, with regard to racial justice, 
There's been a lot of talk in recent years about institutions coming forward and publicly apologizing for any aspects of systemic racism that may have existed in their organizations. And there aren't statutes at this point, like what I just talked about in the medical field, that protect institutions from making those apologies. And in fact, recently there have been institutions that have come out and made public apologies and then within very short time face serious legal or regulatory impact for doing so. Princeton University comes to mind where they had, I think about a year ago, made a a lengthy apology about historic and systemic racism at the university. And shortly thereafter, the U.S. Department of Education filed an action against them. And so that's a big red flag and a wake-up call to a lot of institutions about what the dangers are of making an apology, even if doing so feels like the right and moral thing to do. And that's why it's important to consult with professionals about this. And often also, frankly, to balance the need for whatever the public relations objective is with what the legal objectives are. Very important counsel, Amy. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about when this approach of facilitated dialogue could be successful. Like what types of situations have you seen it done effectively and where it has been really a success in terms of diffusing and resolving these potentially damaging conflicts? Well, conflict sometimes exists between groups that are important stakeholders of an organization. And so they come to the table with a shared goal of helping and promoting an institution that they care about deeply. But they may have very different views about an issue that has arisen. So, for example, sometimes there's disaffected alumni in a school or a university. They love their school or university, but they're very unhappy with how the administration or the board has handled a particular issue. Or you have a group of students or parents that may be angry. Or, for example, donors to nonprofits who have a different view with either one another or with the administration. And so those are very common situations, but what they share with their adversaries is their concern overall for the institution they're supporting. And you can see where this process would really help in that situation where there is a strong affinity for the organization and a desire to continue that affinity and to be able to go forward in a a positive working relationship. That's right. And as opposed to other adversarial situations in which one side or the other seeks the destruction of the other or serious consequences or punishment or damages. When you're dealing with a conflict within an institution itself, the fact that they're supporting the institution means that fundamentally they don't want to harm it. Now, there all are situations of conflict, for example, in the Me Too arena, where people are now coming forward and sharing experiences that they've had In the past, it may be as long ago as a generation, and the statute of limitations may have run out, and yet there is still a strong residue of pain and suffering and unresolved grievances. 
is this concept of facilitated dialogue, could it be effective in helping to heal those types of situations? Yeah, it can. And in fact, I've been involved in a number of these that involve, you know, particularly Me Too claims from decades ago involving people who are now much older in their life and have had a whole long life and many of the victims, you know, have been dealing with the pain of of what happened to them for a very, very long time, but they don't have the opportunity to seek resolution within the legal system. I've been involved in situations in which the perpetrator or representative of the perpetrator and the victim are brought together again with a third-party facilitator, a trained professional in mediation and counseling therapy, that type of thing, to bring the parties together and to facilitate an opportunity for each side to share their perspectives on what happened. And it might even involve an apology, again, depending on how the institution or the perpetrator is counseled on that. But what's really important is that by doing so, there really is a power in the listening. And many therapists have counseled their patients, their clients, that being able to sort of confront face-to-face their perpetrator and to talk about the impact of what happened all these years later has great therapeutic benefit. And so there's an advantage to allow the parties to sort of have that moment and then move on. In uh, closing, I'd like to go back to the issue of, of social media and how that can be managed. It can often, as we've said earlier, really accelerate a conflict and bring it out into the public arena. What are some of the tactics for managing the potential for social media to harm or help these conflicts? Well, Joy, if it's a short-term situation, we often recommend not necessarily engaging on social media because engaging can make the conflict so much worse. And so the first question you have to ask is, are the social media posts getting traction and with who? If the answer is they're not getting much traction or they're not being shared outside of a very small channel of people, it's often better just to leave it alone and let it die on its own. But sometimes you have to shut down the social media if it's going kind of crazy and getting a much more wider access. So what we'll do sometimes is shut down social media for a while, meaning, and it depends again on which social media platform we're talking about, If it's Facebook and it's your own Facebook page, you can control the comments by shutting down all comments, positive and negative, and you can also remove only the negative comments from your site. If this is happening more on somebody else's site or on Twitter, it's much harder to control the negative comments. You know, and it's very hard for any organization or individual to be attacked and not respond. If there is discussion about whatever the conflict is, do you advise people about putting their story on their own channels or not? 
Well, again, if it's something that is of serious concern and that is reaching a lot of people and a lot of people who are important stakeholders for an institution, an individual, or an organization, we always suggest that if they are going to respond, that they post truthful and accurate information. Because there's always two sides to everything, right? Clarity of facts can often stop the spread of negative and false information. And we're living in a period of time right now where there is an abundance of misinformation. And so the countering of misinformation with truthful and accurate information is very, very important. And speaking of our environment today, we are dealing with a great deal of misinformation and disinformation that is out there. What about the role of public figures if they are involved in one of these disputes and are making statements that are perhaps not accurate? What is the recourse for the parties who are involved? Well, I think the general understanding has been that if politicians make false statements, there's not a lot that you can do about it because the way our defamation laws are in the United States, it is much more difficult to hold political figures accountable because the law basically says, you know, you counter false speech with more speech and and let the voters sort it all out. And most of the time it's because they're speaking about issues of public concern. But there is an interesting development that's happened in the last year with the social media platforms. Facebook and others are now changing their policies that previously gave extra protection to politicians' speech, meaning the truthfulness of political speech. And now political figures are going to be held to the same standard regarding prohibited posts as everyone else. Of course, the prohibited posts we're talking about are things that incite violence and statements that further hate and target against uh, specific groups of people. Those things had been banned from Facebook, Twitter, and other social media posts for a long time for sort of regular individuals, and political figures were allowed to get away with doing some of that up until now, but I think because of what happened in the last year or so in elections in the United States and elsewhere, the rules have been changed now. The standards of use, if you're going to be a user of these platforms, has changed, and if you violate those rules, you can get tossed off the platform, as we know former President Trump has. Well, this has been an extremely insightful and important discussion about how to use these techniques to bring about consensus. And they're both communication, their facilitation, and their conflict management. So, Amy, before we wind up, I just wanted to ask, is there anything I haven't asked you about or anything you'd like to reiterate the importance of in this area? Well, I think it's important that professionals who are working on behalf of clients to help their reputations and to resolve conflicts, just recognize all the tools that are available in the toolbox, that it's not only about putting out statements and it's not only about fighting back necessarily in a legal forum, but that there can be opportunity to look for ways to diffuse a situation, look for ways to bring people together to find consensus. And we do that by understanding at the very front end of things what our clients' objectives, and that sometimes it's the facilitated approach that gets us the things that our clients are hoping for. 
Thank you. Very, very important advice. Amy, thank you so much for being part of our series on resolving conflict and using influencer techniques to build consensus. I want to um, encourage everyone to think about strongly what Amy has said in terms of these new additional tools in our toolbox that are useful and mandatory really to some of our clients depending on the situations they're in. We are responsible for reputation management and there are so many and a growing number of situations that can threaten our clients' reputations today. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Joy, and stay cool. Yeah. (laughs) It's very warm in California today. Thank you for listening to the PRBI Insider featuring members of the PR Boutique's International Association. Never miss an episode. Go to prbiinsider.com and follow us in your favorite podcast app or subscribe via email. Learn more about PRBI at prboutiques.com.